This week on the show, we have Stephen Frost, former senior editor for PlayStation Magazine and current head of production at Digital Eclipse, the developers behind TMNT, the Calabunga Collection, and Atari 50, the anniversary celebration. And if you're enjoying the show and want to help support it, make sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash kojimafreak. Fingers. Yo, it's Apache Smash. Hey everyone, this is Days Ahead. And I'm Nitroid. You're listening to the Kojima Frequency. All right, well, Steven, thanks first off for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down and talk to us about everything that you've been up to. With We've got a lot to talk about here on our notes, but you know, you've been recently involved in the TMNT Calabunga Collection and... Ow! The Atari 50, the anniversary celebration. I mean, these are two collections of old school games that I see as like the shining example of like how we should be doing these collections. Not just throwing a couple ROMs on a, you know, on a disc. And then at the beginning of the thing, when you start it up, you choose which game you play. And then, you you know, that's it. But like you guys are definitely going the extra mile. And, you know, just the passion is really, uh, you can see it, you know, in the, in the end product. So it's it's uh it's definitely an honor to get to talk to you and uh looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're we're definitely trying to um you know elevate things, not just for our own selfish goals, but also just to like set, you know, a new sort of level that hopefully other companies will try to endeavor to reach. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, hopefully we kind of view it from like, you know, the ocean raises all boats right and yeah. it can it can only benefit the preservation efforts and um you know that sort of uh level or area of work uh, it can only improve it for the industry if if people kind of step up and try to do it and like, like we do you know trying to achieve that sort of criterion level of quality but for video games i like that the criterion yeah honestly yeah i mean you guys have done stellar work there you know is as far as games go with everything being remade and remastered these days, there doesn't seem to be a lot of focus on preservation. And, and that seems to be something that really exemplifies the work that Digital Eclipse is doing. It's 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 really standing out. Well, cool. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of hard work, which is why I think a lot of people don't try to go that deep down the rabbit hole. But, mm. you know, we love it. And, and I think that the reception to it is showing that the public is interested in more of that stuff. So, you know, we want to continue trying to do it. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I grew up, I, I grew up a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kid, you know, I was born in 87. So like, that was my, <laughs> I was the target demographic for that. And like, grew up with all those games and just played the hell out of them. And just to have them all on one disc, or to just be able to open up my Steam and just, you know, play them all or play the Japanese versions or turn on, you know, XYZ enhancement for the game and stuff. It's it's just really like a treat to just go back and have that all in one package. And for the people that weren't around and able to experience it on the first run, it's like, well, here you go. Here's like a pretty much like perfectly preserved version of these games. You know, it's not like you take example, uh, like the, the GTA HD collection where they went in and like changed a bunch of stuff, you know, it turned out not great, but I think you guys are more on like the preservation side of like keeping it how it is and then maybe offering those enhancements. So we have a choice of both. And I think that's really refreshing to, you know, be able to just play the OG version with all its flaws or this new enhanced version that you guys threw out. So 
Yeah, I think that's sort of part of the mantra of the pillars that we do, which is like, A, don't change it unless there's a specific reason to do it, whether it's legal or some other reason. Um, and then, you know, whatever you do, um, allow people, you know, give them the toolbox to play it the way that they see fit, but don't ever force them to play it, um, you know, a certain way. And um, I, I think going back to sort of your comment about Turtles, I think what's great about Turtles is that every, gen unlike a lot of different IPs and properties out there, um, Turtles has always sort of been around for every generation. Like there's always a new cartoon, there's always a new yeah. comic book series, uh, a new animation or whatever. And so even if you are a different generation from someone else, there's always a version of Turtles that is part of your generation. And so you're still familiar with it. And it's one of those rare properties that transcends time a bit because it keeps iterating and changing, you know, throughout yeah. the decades. And it's still great. Like that's like, even like with the comics and stuff that they're doing, like the IDW runs, it's like these new like twists on the, on the original story. It's like, I, I love that. You know, it's, it's, it's great to just see it kind of reinvented, but yeah. then just going back to like, you know, the preservation side, it's like, yeah, just, you guys are just, you're showing us all these stages that it went through, you know, the, the Game Boy games, you know, the, the old arcade games and, you know, just how it went up to the Genesis and Super Nintendo eventually. It's like, you know, it's just cool seeing that journey, you know, and, and seeing multiple generations of, of, you know, of turtles all represented, you know. Right, right. Yeah, and you can kind of see how it sort of progressed, right? And it's always nice to mm -hmm. have, like, the different versions side by side. So it's like, oh, maybe I didn't have a Sega Genesis growing up. Uh, I never played Hyperstone Heist. I only had the Super yeah. Nintendo. So being able to see what the other side got um, is sort of a, you know, an interesting aspect of that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to assume that they're the same games, like most of the people, you know, it's like, no, like you take like Aladdin, for example, like those were two completely different games for Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo. So yeah, it's definitely a lot of differences out there between. Yeah, exactly. And that was another, you know, that was another release we worked, or I worked on in, you know, uh, some years back was that Disney release. So yeah, just finally, we only recently last, you know, the last year or two got finally the Capcom, the Super Nintendo version added to it, um, which is cool to have that juxtaposition as far as being able to compare how drastically different the Super Nintendo Capcom game is versus, you know, the Virgin Genesis game. The other thing that really makes it stand out is that a lot of the times with these sort of re-releases, they sort of get piecemealed out. But this collection, it's, I mean, it's a collection. It's got a, it's got pretty much every single Ninja Turtle game I grew up with. Uh, and that sort of is another thing that shows up in a lot of the releases that you guys do. Um, I mean, I, going back to what you said about having to make changes in terms of like legal or, or you know, uh, content concerns or, or anything along those lines. I mean, how difficult is it to sort of get all of these things together in a way that you can say, okay, now we've got the green light where we can put them all together and do what we want and put it out there? Yeah, it, it can be tough. And Turtles was one particular one where there's a lot of groups involved. And, you know, Konami, Konami are such great partners, especially uh, the producer that we have over there, Charles. Um, he, he's phenomenal. And, and, you know, we worked with him on Yu-Gi-Oh! in the past, too, because we used to do um, the Konami Yu-Gi-Oh! games, which is, you know, not a preservation thing, but just a very, you know, a different kind of game. And, but we had the partnership with, with Konami and the trust with Konami. And so they spent a ton of time, you know, even before they kind of reached out to us officially, they had to do a lot of legwork as far as clearances of those games and the music as much as they can and the current IP holders. So there was a lot of just time investment and legal clearances um, that that was done before we even kind of came, you know, into the picture. And so fortunately, you know, once we got there, we were able to focus on 
uh, what we need to do and work on it outside of some clearances here and there because obviously anytime you create new artwork, which we did, or add new music or add this or that, you still have to get clearances to all the different IP holders. Um, but that was definitely more manageable without you know, having to deal with also trying to clear all the games you know, at the same time, uh, which would have been uh, very much sort of a, a, a time sink. And it's always probably a large time investment, that whole clearance and trying to figure out um, you know, who owns the rights to each component of a game mm-hmm. is far more time intensive than most people are aware of and you know, can take months, years, um, and you know, especially as these games are older and older. Turtles is already old enough, but like when you bring up the Atari 50, when you have games that are like 30 years old, um, it becomes really you know, nebulous as far as like who actually owns the rights. Yeah. And not only that, but are you 100% sure that you have the clearance to do it because even for like 80%, 90%, you don't want to risk that. So you always have to go in with 100% clarity and that always makes things a little bit more challenging. And it's not just the games either. It's, uh, I mean, uh, in these collections, you've you've included marketing materials, commercials, et cetera. And I imagine that's got a lot of difficulty to it as well. Sure. I mean, you have like a lot of different partners, um, alternate games or whatever that showed up in ads, companies, um, things like that. So you obviously have to go in and, and think about that stuff. Oftentimes, like there might be uh, things like phone numbers, right, and mailing addresses that no longer pertain to those companies or people, and you don't want to just willingly post it because maybe it's someone else's phone number now, right, or someone else's address. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes me think of like when uh, Red Letter Media when they call those companies on the back of the VHS tapes. Like we don't want that situation. Exactly, exactly. So you kind of have to go in and, and look for that stuff. And, you know, it's it's the sort of what I call like the CD underbelly from the standpoint that most people don't even think about that when they buy one of our collections. Uh, but it's there's a lot of work in cleaning up this stuff, restoring it, not only from like a quality perspective, because sometimes the scans and the overall assets that we get because they're so old are really, really bad. Mm-hmm. So we have to spend a lot of time not only like cleaning them up and getting them to a presentable you know, a look, but we also have to make sure that there's no, you know, the legal lines are relevant or do we need to remove them or do they pertain still and addresses and phone numbers, um, other IPs or properties that are part of the ads or marketing materials and things like that. So there's a lot of like cleanup, editing and clearances in relation to all that stuff that has to go on as well while we're working on the uh, collections. So what you're telling me is I cannot write to Stick Stickly anymore? <laughs> Man, you can in your heart. Yeah, exactly. You can write an imaginary email and then delete it. <laughs> What's really stood out to me with with um, I was exploring the uh, Atari collection with fingers when I was over at his house. I, I really feel like collections in the past have been, as fingers said, they just shovel out of rums on a disc and go, "Oh, here's this collection," but. This, what you've done is more like an actual collector's piece where you don't necessarily even need to play the games. You can kind of look through it and appreciate um, the time it's from and read so much information about it. It's like you can explore it without even playing a single game. It, it really is like an actual collection, just in a digital medium. Yeah, and I think part of that, what we would always... We repeat over and over again here is the context, context, context. And um, that is really important uh, in a lot of ways. And we try to include that in every um, sort of release that we do. And I think that's the component that a lot of companies don't understand uh, that aspect of it. So, you know, a lot of a lot of folks will say, okay, well, we've got this 
uh, collection of games that are popular to a certain demographic of people. Uh, there's an expectation that you have some behind the scenes contents. And so you kind of just throw in some you know, marketing materials or ads or some behind the scenes stuff and you call it a day. But what the issue with that is, is that it caters to the nostalgia of a certain number of folks. But it'll never expand upon that because there's no reason for people to look at it. You don't provide them a reason that they should care about that property. So whenever a release like that comes out that caters to a very specific group without doing anything else to like expand that, um, you know that it's going to be a very limited sales uh, percentage. right? Um, so what we've always felt is that we don't rely on the fact that Sure, nostalgia is important. There's no doubt about it, like for turtles and stuff like that. But we also try not to rely on the fact that um, people's nostalgia is what carries them to just buy these releases. We also want to explain to people why you should care. And that's sort of presented in a variety of different ways. But it comes to a head with Atari because with Atari 50, there have been a variety of releases over the last decade in both you know software and hardware with the flashback consoles and things like that. So... Intrinsically, uh, from a user-facing perspective, the, a lot of the Atari library is not necessarily anything special. They've seen a lot, especially the Atari 2600 games. So you can't like wow them like you can with Turtles. Like We're like, oh, I haven't played a Turtles game since it's originally released because they haven't really shown up in any software form since then. So I'm like, oh, I want to buy that because I want to play that again, and this is the way to do it. Uh, Atari games have been released sort of over and over and over again uh, for quite a while. So we knew kind of going into it that the sort of presentation that we had for a lot of our past releases, such as even Cowabunga Collection, where the games are the focus, wouldn't carry as much weight and you know, sort of showcase the importance of this sort of celebration. And so we kind of learned early on and kind of came to this conclusion that we need to present it in a different way and that the games themselves should not be kind of the key focus of the release, but more so treat it as like another asset, just like you would, you know, a press release or an ad or a TV commercial and are used to more so tell the story of something. And, you know, with the 50th sort of anniversary of Atari as a company, it really kind of, the, the dominoes kind of lined up where it made sense to sort of tell this greater story of where Atari came from and sort of where it's going and utilize all of the assets that we have at our disposal to kind of get there. And, you know, along those lines, we also wanted to make sure that we didn't throw like hundreds and hundreds of games into this willy-nilly because we feel that the more games you throw into something, the the perception of the less importance they have. And so we really yeah. wanted to focus on the curation of what is in the uh, celebration and mm -hmm. really make sure that each part of it helps to tell the overall story that we're, we're trying to do. So there was a, there was a considerable lot of work. And you know, normally when we go into these celebrations or these releases, these collection releases, on day one, we kind of know what the game list is going to be. But Atari was a little bit more challenging because we had to kind of adjust it constantly based off of the story that we were building up and the interviews that we were doing and, and how the story was going to unfold. And so there was a, more so than any other past collection, there was a lot more regular discussion about like, oh, okay, we need to add this game. Well, do, is this game still relevant? Oh, this game doesn't work because of legal issues or technical issues. Okay, what are we replacing it with and why is that game important? So organically, the list kind of grew uh, to what it is now, the 103 games. But it was never a sort of a desire to kind of throw in 200, 250 games because we really wanted everyone to 
every one of them to kind of feel at least a bit more important and relevant and serve a purpose. Yeah, it just becomes like overwhelming after you hit a certain point. Like you see certain things online. It's like comes with 10,000 games. You're like, but are they good? Like, you know, or like, or do, they, or do they matter? Yeah. It becomes another action 52. Yeah. yeah and, 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 right. and to that point, and to that point, not quote unquote every game in Atari 50 by people's, you know, perceptions is quote unquote good, right? Yeah. But true. they serve, they're either like the first of a kind of something or they were mm-hmm. developed by a particular person uh, and there's a reason why they're there and it helps to provide a broad sort of spectrum of what games were available on those platforms. And and that's why I think that historical context is important. I love that you like screamed context like eight times because the whole time <laughs> in the back of my mind I was using it, like I was thinking this team, they provide one historical context to give folks, you know, that that additional information, that additional history of why this is important, not just like, you know, a game that has some historical precedence, right. but also, like you said, it appeals to other audiences. It's not just folks that, you know, grew up with these games who want to have them readily available, but you get you, you pull in folks like me who, you know, want to kind of understand where this came from and what the vibe was at the time. And I think these collections uh, really kind of fulfill that objective. Well, it's fitting, too, that you use the word curation because it I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but it's very much like an interactive like a digital museum in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think that was important. I mean, I think the early concept that we kind of came up with and what I sort of echoed throughout development is kind of like, I equate it to walking into a museum exhibit a room, right? Let's say it's like dinosaurs. And the the thing about museum sort of displays, of course, they're curated in what they want the story to be and things like that. But there's a variety of different um, entry points. So you go into a room that's a dinosaur exhibit and there's like, oh, to the left, maybe there's a video about a specific topic related to dinosaurs. On the right side, maybe there's some sort of interactive kiosk or something. Um, there's uh, like images or of, of dinosaurs in another section. There's a plaque with like a story of the extinction of dinosaurs in another section. And you as a person can go around and digest that material in any order that you want to and spend as much time because everything is in a digestible format. And so you can take it in and it's, it's very quick and it's very easy. So we kind of took that as a general example and kind of try to apply it to every aspect of Atari 50, which is why sort of for the first time, it is designed to allow you to jump around uh, very easily in the timelines, to jump to a game after you've read about it, play it for like even 10 seconds, and then jump back to the timeline. You know, mm-hmm. in, in past collections, you had to back out and go to a different mode, right? If you wanted to play something, then you have to back out and go back to the museum. And there are specific reasons why we build those those ways. But it was really important for this collection, that everything be very snappy, very digestible, allow you to skip around and read about the things that you want to. And then if you want to check out the game, even if it's like for a minute, two minutes, you can, and then just jump back up, back yeah. to the timeline. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's like, it's it's different with the, like, the Calabunga collection. It's like the games are all in one section, and then you can go over to like, here's all the extras and the material, like, you know, and here's here's all the stuff, but it's like, it's in a separate section. So yeah, but with the with the Atari collection, it's, it's definitely just like streamlined as hell. Like, I love that timeline, how you guys have it set up, and then you can just, you know, you can pick an era, you know, you've got the eras to begin with, you know, if you're just interested in a certain time, 
and then you can just dive right in and then just slowly go to the right. And then like, if you like that era or that one particular thing that you're talking about, you can dive down deeper into that one, you know, to those bullet points. And then you've got the, the videos and the interviews and stuff. So yeah, it's a really good format and really easy to navigate. And then, like you said, just to hop right into a game and then hop right back out. And there you are, you know, you're right where you left off. That's, that's a really convenient, like UX solution right there. Yeah. You just also reminded me of the international spy museum in which it's curated around you being an agent for Obama trying to catch Osama bin Laden. Can you do it? I was sorry. I was just talking to Apache about this. <laughs> I didn't kind of unfortunately missed out on going there, but um, I did have like a, what, what was special about it to me. And uh, I haven't had the chance to dive in with it. I had like one, one day for a few hours messing around with it, but it has a whole section on the Atari Lynx. And I, I really like the Lynx and I've never once gone and downloaded a bunch of roms for it because it's it's not the same as like actually experiencing the handheld console right and when i when i played it on the on the collection and you have like you know the interviews and the the guys who like love it like uh, you know i don't i'm not gonna say i love it as much as them but i really do like yes. the atari links and seeing these guys just like nerd out about the links and then you get to play on one it's like it's just a totally different experience from just getting some crap roms and playing the link yeah. sounds out your pc i can't help but think of gran turismo when i look at this because there's that same sort of like passionate attention to detail and and care taken with presenting every single element sort of how they present every single car there's there's like a, a similar underlying philosophy between this and gran turismo i think yeah i mean it's it's we definitely wanted to treat everything as importance and obviously the the ui design went through a lot of iterations but the interesting aspect of that is that we were really and i've said this before we were really nervous uh hmm. about how it's designed and going out into the world um because it could be perceived as too different. Like, you know, someone, especially people who are fans of our past releases going into them, like, where are the games? Like, why can't I, you know, <laughs> I, I, why aren't the games the forefront? So I personally, I mean, I don't know members of the team, but I was sort of personally kind of a little bit nervous. Like, are people going to get what we're trying to accomplish? And yeah. because it is a drastic change. And um, I was worried up to last minute, but fortunately, like, you know, the, the sort of early reviews came in and, and people who got the game early and they're like, oh, this is, they got it, right? They understood and they, yeah. they echoed in their reviews what we think in our brains as we're doing this. And it was so, like, wonderful, such a wonderful feeling because we then said, okay, you know, what we did was the right direction. Um, but there was, there's no doubt, there was a, a, certainly many moments where I was personally like, I don't, I don't know, is this too extreme of a, a difference? Like it's, it's like very much more of like a, a documentary in an in interactive, you know, from an interactive standpoint and are people going to get it? Um, so I'm glad they did. And even then you, you've got that one button at the front that's just like, and here's your game list if you want that. Like, so like for those people, it's like, okay, just dive right in. Here's the whole list. Like, have at it. It is true. It is true. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of this segue because Nitroid mentioned Gran Turismo. And then you mentioned sort of critics and journalists and how they interpreted things. And I just want to say this. Uh, I was looking at your resume while writing some of these notes. And like, I, I grew up on PSM and I remember like wanting to be like, the girl Chris Slate. So it is so like it is such a weird experience actually talking to somebody who worked there. And we've brought up the magazine a few times. Um, 
in, in the context of this show. Oh, uh, particularly the, the like a lot of the, the covers. Um, I'll never forget like James, like the super gruff James Sunderland and the bikini, right. the swimsuit bikini months. And I'm sorry, yeah. I just I just needed to pop off on that. <laughs> well, thank and, you. Uh, it's awesome to be able to talk to somebody from that staff since it was such a big part of my childhood. Yeah, PSM ruled. Oh, it's so funny that I'm talking about a big part of my childhood being like Chung Lee in a bikini and right. like fucking James <laughs> Sunderland like with a gun like getting his shirt torn off i don't know well those like, old game covers hit different back in the 90s yeah they're fucking awesome <laughs> yeah yeah it was very different i mean thank you i mean i appreciate that that's wonderful that you, you got enjoyment like i to this day that those those years were some of the, probably still are the best you know of my career not that i haven't had a, a very enjoyable video game related career but that was like me and friends hanging out playing games and talking about them Right. And yeah. you could. Yeah. And you could feel that you could feel that. I mean, even as a kid, I could sort of feel that vibe like it was just a bunch of friends gathering and putting their thoughts and, and presenting that to the world. Um, but sorry, go ahead and continue. Oh, yeah. No worries. But thank, thank you for that. That's 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 awesome. Given your career uh, and what you do at Digital Eclipse now, can you sort of walk us through like what is a head of production exactly? Like what is what is your job entail? What's your what's your day to day like? Right. Um, so. I am slightly different from a lot of other companies from the standpoint that like traditionally uh, head production kind of like steps away a bit from the actual being a producer producer on games and generally tries to, um, you know, get all the obstacles and, and get all the processes in place and, and fix all the problems to make things easier, easier for the producers in general so that they can help drive the projects and get those at a good place, right, to a good quality and on time and things like that. Um, but I, I still sort of love getting my hands dirty in the games. You know, since I started, I came in at Digital Clips. Uh, I was brought in to do Street Fighter because um, I'm a big fighting game fan, and it's kind of like I just love this nostalgic kind of looking back. And a lot of these games, I've been lucky enough, were all things that I loved growing up, right, and all resonated with me. Yeah. And, you know, I have been passionate about and. I think that's the sort of the key thing here that I really, really love is that a, a lot of companies who, you know, not all, but a lot of companies, like, they'll release these sort of um, nostalgic collections because they know that there's sort of a fan interest in it. But intrinsically, the people who work on them, it's just a project. Like, they don't necessarily care about the IP yeah. or things like that. Um, what's been amazing about Digital Clips and especially Atari is that, like, there's always been a large part of the teams that are sort of intimately, um, you know, in love with those particular IPs and are very passionate. And I think what that helps with is that organically, it, people are just generally put forth even more effort than they normally would because they, they love the material, right? Mm -hmm. And so just naturally, you get better uh, quality out of it. You get a better, better release. And what was amazing about Atari, that even more so than the other properties, is that literally every single person who worked on Atari 50 was really passionate about some aspect of Atari. There wasn't a single person. So every component, like every discipline and everything loved Atari and wanted to make not only Atari, but Atari fans proud of what we're doing. And so I think you, you see that in all aspects. But going back to, so your thing, like what I generally do now is I still uh, am the main producer in a lot of these releases, not everything. Like last year, um, you know, I helped finish up uh, Cowabunga. Uh, I helped a bit on Garbage Pail Kids, which was a smaller release. And then Atari 50 was the big one. This year, we have way more 
releases than last year, like considerably more. Um, so now, you know, we, we have a lot more uh, sort of teams working, a lot more producers working. So I kind of balance out my time between like, you know, helping to manage all aspects of particular projects and sort of making sure that we have the resources, we fall in line with budgets, everyone has what they need to do the best job possible, while also helping sort of manage aspects of the studio and the company as a whole, and just making sure that from a production and development perspective, um, we have everything that we need to continue improving and releasing the quality products that we do. So uh, my days can be full from a, a huge uh, amount of stuff, from like you know creating like a resource plan for a project to uh, you know, writing responses for an interview for a magazine, uh, to talking with a licensor holder, like, you know, if I, or an external partner, if we're working with Konami, or if we're licensing a property, having a, a call with them and just making sure that, you know, we're doing everything that we are, need to do in order to fulfill the proper relationships and the quality levels for the licensor. So it's just a huge barrage of stuff, ordering development equipment, um, like everything you can think of, um, you know, uh, that is part of a, a project I try to get my fingers in because I've always personally viewed that the more that you understand about all the parts of the machine, um, the better as a video game developer you are. So I spend a lot of time trying to understand all of how the different disciplines work and how I can improve um, their efficiency and their, you know, their desire to uh, and love for the work and things like that. And so I learn a lot through that. So that's kind of a nugget of a variety of things I work on. Sounds like you really uh you bat for your team there. What is what do you find is like the the toughest element of um of of sort of developing this or, or producing this? Like you mentioned that you'd go through all these sort of negotiations between like Konami yep. developers, any sort of folks that you have to get rights from. Like what has been sort of your in your experience, what is what is sort of the toughest task? What is the thing that you see it on your project man you see it on your Kanban board and you're just like, oh shit. Like what is that for you? <laughs> so there's two things in the very different sides. So the number one thing, especially like in a project like Atari, is like, you know, the time investment in trying to get legal clearances or what we can include and what we can't. Um, it takes a lot of time. And, um, you know, one of the one of the uh, consistent comments that people might have for Atari 50 is like, oh, I wish there was more like third party stuff. Uh, I wish there was more like Activision stuff, um, things like that, which is understandable. Um, but the, you know, we just didn't have time from that perspective. We had, we had so many larger things to tackle, a new sort of interface. We either built or integrated um, all the emulators that we utilize for Atari 50 are either new to our engine or built from the scratch, you know, from the ground up like the Jaguar. Um, so there's a ton of effort just uh, creating the emulation layer for a lot of these sort of games. And the large number of games. So there's, there's a lot of work that's involved, which made, you know, also trying to pursue legal stuff challenging. And I'll give you an example of like, uh, just to give a time perspective, um, I attempted to, to work with an external company to clear, to get legal clearance for a single screenshot and a paragraph of text. Jesus. And I spent, and I spent two months, <laughs> oh, man. I spent two months trying to get that cleared, and I still couldn't get it cleared. <laughs> oh my God. So I only share that as an example. So people out there understand how much time investment there is to try to actively pursuing a clearance for certain things, especially um, if they're very old, decades old, because what you come across, and we came across this, is that you come across people or companies 
that think they own the rights to something, but they don't, and vice versa, people who don't think they own the rights to something, but actually they do. Mm-hmm. Where and have so, we heard this before huh. recently? Yeah. Right. So it's it's oh, that's geez. so legal clearances are always kind of tough and challenging and and you know, a, a huge time sink and very stressful in that you want to include as much as you can and you have to hedge your bets. Like, do you feel 100% confident? Do you feel 80% confident, right? Um, because oftentimes it's it's up to your judgment in some way. So that's one side that's always kind of challenging and problematic from a game development perspective. The other side, which I guess is a good problem to have, is the, the pursuit of quality. And everyone's like cheesy, like, oh, pursuit of quality. But like, when do you stop? Like, where... You know, how long do you keep going, right? Before the return on investment and the time is um, sort of not worth it, right? And and you battle this. This is a producer problem, as I give insight into this, where like everyone on the team wants to put forth as much quality and fix as much stuff and add as much stuff as they can. But you also know that you have to get this game out. It has to get out and it has to be within a certain time constraint and budget constraint and other challenges that are put in place at the start of a project, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is this fine balance of juggling of like, well, obviously you want to put the best foot forward as you can. You want to present this in the best way possible. But you know, when, when can you close the book on it? Right. Is there a lot of risk of feature creep with a with a project like this? It is, yeah, and that's and but just in general in the pursuit of quality, right? Because people a lot of times, and we've kind of gotten used to this because a lot of our best features come at the very last, the eleventh hour, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we've kind of gotten comfortable with dealing about it from a production perspective. It's very nervous. You're, you become very nervous because the deadline is fast, fastly looming. And you don't know if you're going to be able to do it. And I'll give two examples of that. The first one from Calabunga Collection were the interactive strategy guides that everyone sort of loves in that, um, which, yeah. which are the Nintendo Power style um, sort of uh, strategy guides for each individual game. That was an idea that came up at the very, very last minute, right? We're all fans of that era of magazines. We love the whole idea of laying down on your living room experience. Like, you know, you've got a game that you're playing, you got the manual out, you got a magazine out with a strategy guide, and that's... Like, that's a happy place. And uh, we want to try to re- replicate that as possible. But, you know, going into the magazine side of stuff, we, we quickly found that it evolved all the different disciplines. It wasn't just one or two disciplines because we had an artist that had to make the new artwork for the strategy guide. And that has to be approved, right? So there's timetables with that. Um, we have the editorial team who has to write the content for the, each of the panels for that. We have engineering who has to now implement a new feature in the game along with support for the watch movies so that you can push a button and play the watch movies in the strategy guides. So that's there, right? And then I have to come in and I'm, I'm placing like the camera positions, uh, coordinates for when you jump around the strategy guide. Um, so like, and that's just, so there's all of these elements that come together at the last minute, but everyone really in a united way felt it was very important um, to have, right? So that's definitely a large feature creep. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of a, a scary thing, but everyone was very united. We kind of pitched it to Konami and they felt, yeah, this is, this is a, a good risk to have. And so we doubled down and we went and did it. And I'm glad we did because people really resonated with that. Um, and they loved it. And we hear it all the time in the reviews and people's feedback on it. So that was a classic case of like, yes, it's worth uh, doubling down. And so you always have this end thing where like, oh, I just thought of this idea or, oh, I just thought of this idea. Um, sometimes... You know, you have to add it post-launch, like at the very end of Atari 50, one of the, a couple of the engineers said like, you know what, we should really add touch control to this. 
um, because we hadn't really thought about it um, as something that would make sense to do. But in our pursuit of trying to get the controls as accurate as possible or allow or provide a variety of options for players to control these Atari games, touch made sense. And so we worked on that for a post, you know, day one patch uh, to add support for the Switch screen and for the touchpad on the PlayStation. Um, and then we didn't want to leave Xbox people out, and so we came up with a 3D printed controller thing that you snap over an Xbox controller that you can turn into a paddle, right? So we're always kind of yeah, thinking about this awesome. stuff. Um, and so it's a little bit, like I said, from a production perspective, it makes you really nervous and it's, it's stuff. But we've kind of gotten accustomed and comfortable with dealing with that because, like I said, most of our, a lot of our great ideas or our biggest ideas come at that 11th hour. And so we try not to say no to it um, because odds are it's generally, it's a net positive in the end and, there, and it adds to the positive reception of the projects. I love that you guys are like providing the, like the STL files for people to just print out. It's like, look, just print out a little paddle thing. You're probably these paddle games and there you go. Like that's, that's awesome. I need to, I need to hit up my uh, 3d printer buddy and be like, Hey, I need a paddle. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the thing. Like we, it's a little cheesy, but we really want to try to replicate the original experience as much as we can. So however that is, whether it's touch um, or like a bunch of, uh, parameters to adjust the analog sensitivity and how it how you set it up for the for the games or a three D printed thing whatever it sort of takes um, you know we really want to be able to provide that to the player and I think that is you know we're kind of going back to like you know everyone is so in love with like what Atari means to them and things like that so every every discipline and every person who works on the team wants to add those things because they're there are obvious improvements to the experience and quality of life stuff that people will appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, but you kind of have to balance it out with actually, you know, getting a project done. Yeah, I love that you guys added like recently in the patch update, like you guys added the the dip switches and stuff like that mm -hmm. for people to even go in and like customize these games even more. And then, you know, from the get go, you've had the different scan line options, you know, and just like the the quick save and the rewind, the the sprite flicker, like you can have that on it. Like it's it's so customizable. To where you can say, like, no, I don't want all the old stuff that used to happen. Or, like, no, give me all that NES slowdown, please. Like, you know, it's, just, it's, right. it's really cool to just to have that available. Yeah, it goes to that the thing that I was saying earlier where, like, we want to provide the toolbox. And we'll give you a variety of ways to play this game. But, you know, feel free to choose how you sort of want to play. And I think that's that's really important. We want to, don't want to force feed any yeah. particular path. Um, we want people to kind of enjoy the experience um, as they see fit. Do y'all think that's how the International Spy Museum feels about their like catching Osama mission? Like, <laughs> we just we don't we don't want you to feel pressured about catching Osama. We just we want you to have a good time. <laughs> just play it your way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I really wish I went now. <laughs> his his talk about the the you know the scan lines, dip switches, enhancements, things like that, it sort of dovetails into what I wanted to ask. Which I've, I've seen on on your website. There's sort of a mention of what's called the eclipse engine. I don't know if that's something you can talk about in much detail, but I was kind of curious about what that, you know, what is sort of, uh, uh, you know, what are the standout features of that engine? What does that enable you to do that other uh, approaches might not let you as easily? Yeah. So I think what uh, it allows us to kind of do, and, and, and this is the big part of preservation is that um, when we build emulators or we build them, we, so we have this layer I guess you you call it Eclipse Engine or whatever um, you want to call it, but it basically it's this interface that the the emulators hook to that connect to and communicate with that controls all of the uh, you know I/O so like you know the controller stuff and the, how it does the audio and video and how what it outputs and things like that and um, it's 
what's good about it is that, especially in relation to emulators, is that they're built in what we call sort of black box situation. So the emulators themselves are kind of agnostic per platform. Um, so once you sort of have that working in, emulate working in, it's hooked up to uh, our sort of kind of quote unquote engine layer, um, it'll work on any system. And what that what's great about that is that then technically, if a new platform comes out or things like you want to re-release something, um, the goal is to have sort of minimal work uh, needed in order to be able to bring that um, those emulators to another platform. We did it sort of with Turtles because like, you know, Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 were new platforms that Turtles came on that we hadn't done before. And and so the time investment to to get those working is is minimal compared to a lot of other uh, internal engines and things like that. And so I kind of equate it to the classic example, or our, our noble goal is like when a new home video format comes out, right, DVD, Blu-ray, uh, you know, uh, 4K, Blu-ray, et cetera, you will always see the reissue of like Casablanca and, um, you know, uh, Godfather. Like there would never be a generation where those classic movies didn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So they're always being remastered and done. But we don't really have that from a game perspective, which is why we lose so many games to history, right? Oh God, this is starting to sound so familiar. Sorry, keep going, keep going. Because <laughs> there's no, there's no We talk about way. this a lot. <laughs> right, right. Because there's no easy way from game engine to game engine to like port it, right? Um, you know, easily from continually, continuously forward um, all the time and without a lot of effort, right? And so people aren't going to want to spend the time and resources unless there's an intrinsic reason why to do that. And so what the benefit of emulation is, especially from a perspective you're building it with an agnostic platform sort of view in a certain way, is that the work that we do on this, like the Jaguar emulator and things like that, we can carry forward to new platforms. And then if Atari were to say, you know, three years from now, hey, we'd like you to release Atari 50 on these new platforms with these new features, the amount of work in it would be far less, right? We could probably get on there very quickly. And hopefully that approach um, gets people to think more about like re-releasing some of this stuff uh, a bit more frequently. It doesn't have to be over and over again. Like I don't think anyone needs to have Atari 50 released every year for the next 10 years. But the, the point is that like a few years from now when there's a desire to do it again, it's not as much work. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of what we want to do for um, preservation is like try to design the system and our sort of engine layer with the emulators to make it as easy as possible for us to um, not only you know jump forward to you know a new generation of consoles and easily sort of or more easily kind of bring these games to those platforms, but also let's say oh uh, a publisher comes to us and like oh here was a platform that was like you you guys released other games for it like four years ago can you go back and add this version of it and we can because uh, you know we can just go back and sort of do that. Um, you know, with, there'll be some sort of challenges because of SDKs and things like that. But in general, it's, it'd be a much easier thing to do than most typical situations. So I think that's what the, if I were to sum up the benefit of that, it's just like, it's this unifying platform where all of our emulators connect to and it allows for easy, um, or as easy as you can, portability between platforms and hopefully future generations of platforms and stuff like that. So we aren't having to do the same work over and over again each time we want to release something. And hopefully that will make it easier to re-release some of this stuff um, more regularly without a huge investment by 
developers and or publishers, so they're more inclined to do it. Yeah, I follow you. So you basically just have to get the Eclipse engine to talk to whatever console right. it is, and then you know the internal coding that's within that container, the engine is like you know that's already like pretty much yeah. good to go. So yeah, it makes I, sense. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's sort of wow. equatable to like a Java runtime machine, if any of you right. know what that is. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly like that. Exactly, it's his own sort of thing. And like you know, hope you know under the under the assumption that console generations don't change completely dramatically, right. then right. it's relatively a straightforward um, process. And yeah, it's standardized. Yeah, yeah, and it allows us to easily so like per project per project, we can say like okay, this project needs um, a Game Boy emulator, it needs an NES emulator, no problem. These are the ones we're using. Uh, this one wants a Jaguar. Our emulator, this one's this, right? It's very easy for us to kind of decouple and couple the emulators that we need to use um, in a more streamlined way, in a, in a time-saving way, um, so that per project we can shift stuff around very easily. That's just about the most refreshing thing I've ever heard in my goddamn life, to be honest with you. Um, we <laughs> on and on about the preservation stuff, and it was just really yeah. wonderful to, to hear that that's, that that's how it's working for you, because goddamn... Yeah, I hit these guys up very quickly. I was like, guys, y'all got to see this Calabunga collection. They are doing it right. Like, holy shit. Get in the street. I'm going to share the screen right now. Like, <laughs> As I was looking through his work, I was like, oh, my God, we're going to have the show's personal hero on. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, it, one of the things I do want to ask you as somebody who does work with these remasters, because, you know, I mean, we're we're the kind of the consumers here. We we only see one end of it. I mean, you know, in regards to, to Metal Gear and Kojima games, we have a bit more insight. But generally speaking, there's not a lot that we know when it comes to what goes on behind the scenes. So. I mean, something I've really wanted to ask somebody for a while is is when it comes to making changes to the source material, and I don't I don't just mean like updating it to make sure it works on newer platforms, but like actual substantive changes, whether that's new features or or changing graphics or things like that. And I know for for the most part, Digital Eclipse is is sort of uh, you know it far more aligned with preservation, uh, which which I love. Um, but how? Uh, let me let me quit dancing around it. How do you make the decision of like this is what we want to change versus this is what we want to leave alone? What is that thought process like? Right. So there's two general sort of ways to approach it. One is obviously from a legal slash publisher. If we're if it's a work for hire situation, uh, publisher request for some particular reason. Maybe it's like a political issue. Maybe it's a branding issue. Maybe it's a legal issue or something like that. Um, so there's 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 that approach. Um, or, you know, like maybe there is something intrinsically uh, a problem with the original game that causes a crash um, that may be uh, problematic for first party submissions these days because, you know, they don't like crashes. Yeah. Um, so there, there's <laughs> that sort of uh, kind of perspective of, of changing stuff. Um, and then there are, um, you know, uh, I mean, I guess that would be the main stuff. And so as far as difficulty, it varies. Like uh, an example of like a thing that we had to change and it, it sort of makes sense. And most people don't even notice this, but like ever since um, Street Fighter, we did the Street Fighter collection, um, we were asked due to uh, legal issues for us to change the Air Force logo on Guile's stage. Oh, wow. So there's a couple things of that. It's like that's a mon sort of a monumental part of Guile's stage, but we understand it's just, a, it's a, it, those games came out at a, a particular time, and now there are legal issues with using the Air Force logo in that regard. Um, so we like we understand that. Um, normally, it's a straightforward thing, but then you come across like problems like, oh, the Air Force logo is mirrored, so it's actually only the sprite is only like, or the decal is only like half of it, and it's flipped, right? It's mirrored on the other side, and so the game, oh, okay. the game doesn't know how to work with an irregular 
shaped uh, decal or sprite. And so the logo that we wanted to use is, is not the same on both sides. It's not symmetrical. Um, and so we had to like uh, figure out a way to, for the game to be able to utilize that. Um, and, but it was important from Capcom. And actually, if you ever look like any, since that time, any future release and for the future of Street Fighter, any of the Street Fighter II games will utilize that image uh, in Guile's stage. Um, so it's the official version of Street Fighter II and its iterations now um, moving forward. Um, so that's an example sort of a, of a legal issue. Same thing with like, you know, uh, Pizza Hut stuff for, for turtles or like, you know, Pepsi, yeah. Pepsi cans or Coke, yeah, Pepsi or Coke cans in um, Street Fighter Third Strike or things like that. And we try to avoid that um, as much as, as possible. Um, and we only do it um, either, like I said, if it's, it's a sort of a, a situation with um, the legal perspective or a published request, or the other situation is we like to consider what the, um, the original sort of intention of the development team was. Mm -hmm. And the example I sort of say to this is, and we kind of did this with uh, the Disney release with Aladdin and Lion King, we did this final cut version where we uh, talked to the original team and we had interviews with them. And during the course of the interviews, I kind of noticed like, oh, they used to bring up stuff like, oh, I wish we could have fixed this or changed this, but we ran out of time and things like that. And so we're like, hey, uh, we can do that now. We can do it. Yeah. We can do that now. <laughs> um, and so we did. And we did the final cut version of Aladdin, which is what I consider like the final ultimate you know, version, the intended version of what Aladdin was supposed to be. And it includes stuff like, you know, there's levels where like there's, there's like sprites, proper sprites missing from the bottom of it and things like that. I mean, that is a basic example, right? Um, again, you can play the original game, but uh, we modified that game in order to represent what the intentions of the development team were if they had the time and, you know, to be able to fix the things that they wanted to. Um, so that's another example of like going in and you know, changing a game uh, for a particular reason. But those are, those are normally the two sort of groups of reasons why we would do that. Um, but normally, um, unless it's like one of those things, we try to avoid changing anything as much as possible and try to relieve thing, leave things as original as possible. It's, uh, it's kind of a known story right now that Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3 are unavailable from stores right now. You can't buy them because of like, there's archival footage that they use that, you know, it's like yeah. footage of JFK and all that, that they licensed out for, I'm guessing 10 to 15 years or, you know, whatever the, the license period that they got. And now that license has lapsed. And that seems to be a thing that's kind of holding Konami up from releasing these, you know, just the version, not even a collection of it, but just like put them back on the store so we can buy them. So it's like, that, that sounds like, like the ultimate nightmare of like trying to like clear some footage from some, you know, some some collection of of uh, archival footage you've got to get in touch with and buy the rights back again, and that yeah, seems like a change that like they couldn't really just get rid of or you know swap out. It's like no, we kind of need that footage because there's a whole speech over here and the footage is relevant to what's going on. So yeah, it's it's a tough thing, and 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 this is the thing. Like people are more savvy now and they understand it, but like you know, decades ago, no one ever understood the context of like oh, re-releasing a game. Like why would we re-release a game, right? Um, so a lot of times to save money, it was like okay, um, it is in perpetuity for this version of the game, or it's for like uh, a few years or something. Because they never imagine we come across this all the time, right? Like we never imagined that 
um, or they never imagined that they would ever re-release this game 10 years from now, five years. Like, who would do that? Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so you come across games where they have to like pay a new licensing fee every single time for music or certain imagery or something like that. Like every single time it's released. Um, or um, it becomes problematic like the Metal Gear situation you said where like a component of a game is so intrinsically using that you know, material mm-hmm. that it would be very problematic to adjust or change out, um, which is unfortunate, but it's, you know, it's par for the course. Like it's, it's that era of game development. No one thought that far ahead. They never bothered. They were more concerned about saving money um, and, you know, just worrying about that particular release of the game, um, which is tough because now, you know, as people who are living and trying to bring these, releases back out on modern platforms and stuff like that, we end up having to try to overcome the stuff. Or there are situations where um, it isn't possible to overcome, so you can't do anything with it, which is unfortunate. What's interesting about the the MGS2 and MGS3 footage uh, issue, and maybe this is just a, a consequence of the agency that they used, but uh, as I understand it, they had licensed this historical footage, and it's it's, you know, it's like uh, for two, it was like stock footage of, of New York City, of like the stock exchange, Wall Street, things like that. Um, I think they had like some some footage from New Year, the New Year celebration on, you know, in the year 2000. MGS3 was a bunch of Cold War footage. He had, you know, like footage of JFK, Gorbachev, things like that. But um, they, they had licensed it for 10 years uh, initially. And then again, when the HD collection came out, for another 10 years. And it, it, it's funny because it was it was like to the day uh, for when the games released. And then again, to the day for when they were pulled from storefronts, like exactly 10 years. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's that's an unfortunate sort of aspect, but it's probably, you know, again, trying to figure out like how much money do you want to spend? Like, do we want to do this right, for right. perpetuity or like 20 years, 30 years? Um, and sometimes... Two, like maybe uh, people get greedy or licensors get greedy or whoever it is, and they're like, oh, this is a known, like originally it wasn't as known of a franchise or a property, yeah. but now maybe it is. Right. And so they want their money, right? And mm-hmm. uh, it becomes pro- cost prohibitive to do a much longer time frame or things like that, which is what you see. And I think you see that a bit more now as people external folks who aren't necessarily traditionally involved in games are coming more into games and being involved in that because it's such a, a, a large industry and, and money-making um, that sort of their expectations for how much they can charge for licensing something um, is completely out of whack with what you know uh, normal expectations are in the industry. So I think there's a bit of a learning curve there too. Yeah, that's the business. You figure out your oof sound is getting viewed by billions of people. And <laughs> right. like I was just thinking money. of that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. So it's uh, yeah, I mean it's it's just education people like you know especially bigger companies who are like I said who aren't uh, aren't part of the game space and Mm -hmm. they just don't know to what scope or scale these things are and it's hard to ask you know it's hard to explain like oh you know we're we do these sort of collections we're not gta right or whatever right um like we're trying to license the music and and you know it our licensing music uh for a collection is very different from you know rockstar licensing a music track for gta you know so um but you know to a lot of these companies it's exactly the same like they don't understand the difference right Mm -hmm. so 
isn't it some like just Japanese company that's just leasing out? At least we looked on that one clip, Nitro, didn't we? Like, and they're not cheap. Yeah, it's uh, Amana Images. It's it's pricey. Yeah, it's I like I get it. It's definitely pricey to lease these things out and get them for a little bit. So it, it's just it sucks that like it either got lapsed like unintentionally, like someone forgot to recheck back in on it, or you would think that like a corporation that size would be on top of that type of thing, or they they plan to let it expire to then you know repurchase it at a later date so they can then extend that ten years out. Like I, I don't know where they're at. I don't even know if it's either of those though, because yeah. I mean. You got to think with Metal Gear sort of being in hibernation in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, you could buy these games, but how many people actually were doing it? Is it worth it yeah. to put that money into renewing a license for another 10 years when you're, you know, basically trickling out sales on, on you know, the PlayStation Network? Yeah. You know, on the PS3, essentially. I mean, it, it's it's where's the incentive there? So, I mean, you know, that's that's where you get into to speculation about, you know, are they going to do a remaster? Would it make more sense to do that if they're going to go through the trouble? Because they did say they were going to to return them to sale, but it's been about six months. So, you know, who knows what's going on? Right, right. I bet you empathize with that guy, whoever's handling that. You're like, oh, man, that's got to be a minefield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And, and like and like you were saying, it, it may not be worth it right because i feel that like sometimes with these larger companies and i've come across this where like it's much harder to get like um a few screenshots cleared versus like hey we want to do 20 of these things and five of the like the amount of effort mm -hmm. is not worth the end result right like like why why do they want to put forth effort to like clear like a few screenshots like why how does it help them in any way and and they only have a certain number of hours in a day right so they have to weigh that with like bigger scope needs right so maybe that's a situation where the guy who is you know tasked with figuring out if we're going to renew for you know metal gear for another 10 years maybe he's got other bigger fish to fry right maybe he's handling yeah. secret in right. or something or whatever right um and that's more of a priority right now than a getting an older version of metal gear out again mm -hmm. and that's like they know what they're holding on to they're like yeah you know it's metal gear we know people love it like when we put it out they'll buy it like it's probably something they just know that they have you know up their sleeve like ready to drop at any point so it's sure. kind of like for them like yeah let's just wait this out wait for the time to be right i mean you know if it is in some type of development but you know something i've I've got to ask though like in a situation where the company wants you to do the collection and you couldn't get so you couldn't get like this historical footage. They won't they won't pay for it, and they're saying do it without it, take it out. Where where does like I'm struggling to find the word the way to ask this. Like where where is a line drawn as far as like for you personally? Like if they're saying if they're saying you do this, you know right? Do do you say no? Like where where does where does the line get crossed for you? Um. It, it really depends, and I think it's sort of a gut thing. I mean, we haven't had to remove something, you know, of such huge importance, so we've been lucky from that regard. But there have been times where uh, a publisher has sort of been, you know, uncertain about some aspect of a game because it's old, and they like, oh, maybe we should intrinsically make this cut, right, which is a major one. And, you know, if we feel that the risk is low on our side, um, we will express that to them and sort of the reasoning why we feel that way and sort of fight to, especially if we feel pretty confident, 
uh, mm-hmm. fight to try to keep something in. But it's really up to them, especially, you know, it's a work for hire situation. The publisher who's working with us is the one paying yeah, yeah. for it, right? So we have yeah. to kind of be beholden the bit. But there's no doubt that we we argue, argue is kind of a strong word, but we we debate and we discuss throughout the course of these sort of releases about what changes um, need to be done and what don't need to be done. And if all avenues have been attempted in order to avoid doing it, right? Because oftentimes, and it can be, where these changes can bring in intrinsic um, stability issues, right? Or um, un- unknown or unexpected changes uh, to an older game because of how they were structured, like you know, an NES game because of the tile sets and how they're laid out. And maybe changing something causes issues like maybe it's reused somewhere else in the game that you don't know, uh, right? It, right. Uh, right? Um, so you have to be very, very careful about that, and that's always something that we, you know, really consciously try to fight against, just because um, we don't want any unexpected issues to rise in the game. But yeah, I think it's to go back to your to question. I think it's just a, a sort of a gut feeling how strongly we feel about it. Um, but fortunately, luckily, um, we haven't had to do. Um, too many large-scale changes, like actually had to do them, um, that you know would keep us awake at night because we feel we're tarnishing or impacting the original experience in a negative way. So I guess in that regard, knock on wood, we've been pretty lucky. God, can you guys do Metal <laughs> please, Gear? Like, please. <laughs> I was going to ask, you need to save in television, and then you need to save Metal Gear. You're our only hope, Steve. We're dying here. That's a lot. That's been like the number one thing said is like every time I'm sitting there showing these guys any of the collections or whatever, and I'm just like, man, imagine this, but for Metal Gear. Like, you know, we wouldn't even have to go to like the PS2 era. It's just like everything PS1 and prior to that, you know, throw in the MSX games, the NES games, throw in Ghost Babble, because sure, why not? But like, and then all the just all this extra stuff. I mean, like we're sitting there just like drooling over the thought of like, man, digital clips would knock that out of the park. Not trying to get any, any answers or anything out of you. You know, I know you wouldn't be able to talk about that even if you were involved in a project, but it would be awesome if you guys could, you know, you got that, you got Konami's number. I mean, you could hit them up, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, that would be, be great. That would be a great one. There's a, there's a large variety of franchises that I would love to work on just from a personal interest perspective. And, um, and I, I think that we are sort of in a, a, a good place with Konami, especially given the success of, of Turtles and the reception to Turtles um, and mm-hmm. even the Yu-Gi-Oh! games and stuff. Like everything we sort of done with them has been good. And I think they learned, you know, I don't put the words in my mouth, but I think, quote-unquote, they kind of learned a lesson a bit because, you know, they, they went off and kind of did their own releases. Um, yeah. And, and while those were okay, I think intrinsically that they weren't necessarily, they were hoping for more, right? They, they wished that it was more, which I think is what sparked the discussion and desire to come back to sort of digital clips and, and you know, work with us on stuff again because they know that we kind of deliver um, these things. And, and nothing against the teams or anyone that, that work on those properties, but um, I, I'd be inclined to believe, and I think this is a natural thing, that in most cases, especially with large companies like uh, Konami or Capcom or things like that, where the people who are working on these sort of releases aren't necessarily the most passionate people about the IPs. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's not to say that's a good or bad thing. I just They can certainly do still a great job. But I think I've learned in my years here at Digital Clips that there's this intrinsic and quantifiable sort of extra kind of magical quality that you get when the people who are involved in the project are inherently like fans of it it just it just cannot be faked it can't Mm -hmm. be faked 
Like it's right. so obvious right. when a real passion is there. Yeah. So and so hopefully, like I said, I feel that our relationship with Konami is really good uh, right now, and I'm sure that. Um, you know, we would love to work with them on future stuff. What that stuff is, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know yet. Um, but yeah. we're always in constant conversation with a lot of these companies, and it's more about timing and and things like that. And especially now, knock on wood, we're a lot busier now um, mm-hmm. too. So finding the time to squeeze in all the stuff that we want to do, um, as well as other people, has, has been challenging. But I think that's a good a good problem to have because now we're actively working on things that we also pursued and are you know passionate about and and doing on our own combined with things that you know with other companies are coming to us and talking to us about so i think that's a healthy a healthy balance and and hopefully we'll keep that going forward yeah um, i i mean i mean not just with metal gear stuff but i I, you know i was looking at everything you've done and uh you know in 2022 there was the uh teenage mutant ninja turtles and the atari uh 50 i'm just like what's 2023 i'm i'm really looking forward to whatever you do I love it to be Metal Gear. I hope it's some Dreamcast <laughs> stuff. That would be cool well, too. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, speaking personally and not as an employee of Digital Eclipse, uh, what would be your sort of dream collection? Uh, uh, there's a variety of things. So there's two that, one is like a silly idea that never happened, but it's just like like percolating in my brain. And I think it would be a fun collection to do. And then one's like more of like a semi-realistic one that I'd love to work on and pursue. So the first one is kind of like this... Uh, whimsical kind of collection that features the sort of one-hit wonder mascot games from like the any like sixteen eight you know like oh I know what you're talking 16, about yes so it's, it's like all those like you know the era of the acrobats and the, even yeah. though like some of them have come back like um, James Pond has sort of come back through Kickstarter but like James oh, Pond, God, James Pond yes. like the <laughs> uh, the McKid you know McKids uh, the Noid like all that stuff yeah. Um, as people were oh sort gosh. of trying to have their own answer to their own mascot, right? After Mario. Yeah, and, yeah it was like the mascot games. Yeah, right. Yeah. The mascot games. Um, I think that that would be really fun and, and kind of be like an enjoyable experience to kind of play through these and see how they evolved through the years and how, you know, the whole licensing aspect that's, and, and that's such like a good that. idea i think that's that's like uh like a, a proof of concept of like video game art history there just kind of showing the historical context of we, yeah. we've joked on this class about one of us one day being a professor for a video game art history course at a community college <laughs> where we yeah. just kind of go over like okay this was the era where like third person over the shoulder shooting started it was mm-hmm. the catalyst was resident evil 4 and what you just described like the the platformer like right. mascot era like that is that is what we want to evoke but your your iteration of it is way more interesting <laughs> uh, so that's one side where it like it'd be really difficult to get the rights for all of it. I mean it'd just be a mad you know it'd be crazy to yeah they're scattered out yeah cluster you know I would even like all the way through PlayStation like Pepsi Man I'd love to include and, and all that stuff right oh, but um, so that's one side that's the whimsical kind of never going to happen side um, the other side just because you know I worked at Sega for almost a decade I love Sega I like fighting games and stuff like that I'd love just selfishly to create a um, Saturn fighting game collection um, uh, that has you know all the Virtua Fighters and all the with multiplayer and rollback yeah all oh that God. yeah except like it, you know it'd be you know, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, fun, right? Fighting Vipers and Fighters Mega Mix and in all that stuff. Um, uh, I would love as a cool, uh, sort of neat 
you know, bundled up collection uh, together. Like I would love to to be able to release that to people and have fun with. Um, so that's that's something that like, oh yeah, I'd love to definitely work on that. I don't I don't know if that will sort of ever happen, but those are sort of two examples, of, like one more serious and one more like sort of like, haha, you know, that would be cool. The Saturn would definitely be like a good collection because I, I do feel like that that hit in such a weird time where like not a lot of people had a Saturn. Like my cousin had one and then like yeah. that was it. Like isn't we played like Albert Odyssey and you know, like this like that's all I really remember of it, you know. But yeah, that'd be a good and that's what's awesome about the Atari collection is like there's you know, I, I consider myself pretty, you know, I've been playing games my whole life, but like there's a lot of stuff on there that I just either haven't heard of or haven't played yet or haven't, you know, seeked out. So right. it's it's awesome to go back and get those. And with with Saturn, I'm sure there's all these like hidden gems in there that are just like really good games, but they just didn't get the recognition or, you know, the marketing behind it or just people didn't have a Saturn to play it on. So Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the Saturn is just a spe- like I, I have like uh, like 13 Saturns. So oh, I wow. just I just love like every variation pretty much <laughs> of the Saturn, though, right? So how many copies of Snatcher do you have? Oh, actually, that's the one I don't have. I don't. I have oh. a. I have a. I have a, uh, a. A repo of Snatcher, but um, I do have two Panzer Dragoon sagas. There you go. Oh hell yeah, I love it. I've been playing that on Switch. I wish that would get a re-release. That's all. It's all. No, no, no. Saga. Oh, Saga. Saga. Not, saga. Not, Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not the remakes of the original Panzer Dragoon, but like. Uh, though a Panzer Dragoon col- collection would be kind of cool, but yeah. So, but I have a, a lot. I have a lot of the pricier Saturn stuff, but I, I don't have Snatcher. I don't have Daytona Netlink Edition. The the, the really uh, you know super expensive. But I have a lot of still sealed because when I left, when I left Sega, they kind of cleared house. Like I felt bad at the time because when Sega moved from San Francisco to uh, Southern California, um, they were giving away a lot of stuff to employees, and so I grabbed a lot of the stuff. So I have a huge, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of like Se- Sega stuff um, that I, awesome. I snatched up and grabbed. <laughs> a weird mixture of stuff like you know style guides for um, uh, Eternal Champions and things like that, right? Or, or, oh, or more wow. about stuff and things like that. So um, you said love that game, yeah. Um, so, but. You know, I've always loved. Uh, I've always kind of loved the the Saturn. I kind of play a lot because it's one of those quirky. It's one of those quirky systems, right? Um, yeah. It's kind of like the Jaguar in some ways because the complexity of it and, and and things like that. But it's such a phenomenal two D fighting game system, um, which is a genre that I really love. So it it kind of hits both points for me. Yeah, that system. It was like a powerhouse two D console, but it had like pseudo three D, if I'm remembering right. It wasn't quite true 3d so developers had to get creative with how they showed 3d spaces it was something like that i don't remember exactly yeah it's 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 it wasn't the 3d was sort of added on as kind of like uh to compete with the playstation right it was sort of a a hacked on sort of thing and and there are a variety of games that do handle it uh pretty well um as well as you can but there's a lot of like most games there's a lot of pop in and and things like that it wasn't really designed but but I, th- those games, because if you're a Sega arcade fan, that was the system for arcade home ports, you know, the House of the Deads and the Manx TTs and the Daytonas and stuff. So if you were a Sega fan, that was, or Virtua Fighter and things like that, that was a, a great system for that. And then if you like 2D fighters of any kind, that was the definitive, like, sort of 2D fighting game system. So um, it always has a special place uh, in my heart. I, I got asked, would you want to include, like, online functionality for those games, or would you want to keep them? as they were um i mean adding online would be uh would be good um the complexity of it is dependent on uh on a few things but since we would since uh saturn emulation is feasible now um probably would be from our perspective straightforward to add online to it um though it is 
more so than most people think, like adding online to emulated games is actually quite difficult. They used they, people think that it's very s simple or straightforward, but it's actually quite difficult because these games were never designed to uh, support online. So yeah, like with the the Calabunga collection, you've got multiple you know games that are SNES, and so it's like, well, now you can play and fight online with these people with you know yeah, and games. and it's some like, games damn. some games work better than others, and like when you have especially with the systems like if you have like two players, three players, it's it's pretty good. Once you get beyond that with emulation, it gets really difficult. Um, mm -hmm. um, which is why it's very it's more challenging than like a game that's built from the scratch up with online in mind like a modern game right which is mm -hmm. which is why like you know we try to do it where we can but in some cases it's it's so the amount of time investment to try to get it working properly is very tough because like can you imagine like the games were never never intended for that right and you have to think about simple things that most people don't think about like in turtles um, if you and I are playing and then you just decide to like leave the game you know in a different state. Um, normally, the, your other turtle would just be standing there, just doing nothing, and you wouldn't mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to progress. And so we have to go in and implement a system where, when we detect a disconnect, we kill the turtle, um, so that a single ah, player okay. can keep going. So these things that like people don't really think about inherently, that we have to kind of figure out solutions for within the parameters of the original games to to make it work. That we you know we have to tackle all the time. So it's those little things that add up uh, in relation to online and trying to fix these these problems and find solutions for stuff that was never meant to happen in the first place. And that's going to be like a different nightmare per game because it's, yeah, because they're different. Like, yeah, yeah. they are different things. Like, you know, um, may, like some games like <clears throat> were, you know, especially with turtles, like you can go in into a single player experience. Um, and for some games it's okay because you can start a two player game with just one player and, and it works fine. But other games like, um, you have to either start a single player or a two player. And if you start two player, it expects two players. But the thing with Turtles, the Calabon Collection, is that you can join it at any time. Um, so you can't just start a single player game because you can't, a second player can't join um, sometimes. So there's all these different parameters and situations that you have to kind of iron out uh, mm -hmm. that you don't necessarily know right off the bat when you start a project that there are going to be challenges that you have to overcome, right? So it's sort of this organic figuring out of like how these games originally worked um, what is the most straightforward way to do what you need to do without like causing um, stability or other issues with these games, right? Um, so there's a lot of like, <laughs> there's a lot of challenges with like, oh, messing around with certain memory addresses or sprite sheets and things like that. And you have to be kind of, you have to go in with like, you know, gloves on because you don't want to like yeah. tip the house of cards, right? That causes uh, yeah. unintended effects. Good luck with this hypothetical um, game. <laughs> Right. Yeah, the the Saturn collection then. Yeah, it's that'd be tricky to pull it off. But yeah, that that's that's a good that's a good idea. Just like you know, Sega collections and Saturn collections. There's definitely tons of good games there. Yeah, I'd and like to see a and, Toe Jam and Earl collection myself. But yeah, and it was it was my <laughs> first project. Actually, ironically, when I when I started at Sega, my first project was the Sega Genesis collection, which we which I worked on with what would become Digital Clips. I mean, it was the Digital Clips group. So actually, my first mm -hmm. my first job as a Sega producer was working with what is basically digital eclipse so it's kind of full circle now that i work at digital eclipse you know and uh um so maybe maybe actually full circle would be working with sega you know uh at something yeah. at digital clips so maybe one day see if you can get them to re-release snatcher <laughs> re-release re snatcher <laughs> it's got too no, much yeah. it's got too much uh like text for people these days i think you know what i mean no oh those <laughs> Darn kids. People don't want to read their games. <laughs> they just want Marvel <laughs> quips, apparently. 
jeez, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, we kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of an admission here. We sort of perused through your Instagram, and you've got kind of an insane game collection. Dude, I, I, it sucks because it's like, I saw your collection. I loved it. I said, oh, this is an amazing plethora of food and retro shit. And then <laughs> I noticed the majority of it was PSPs. I was like, oh my god, I just made myself feel old. Why? <laughs> like, um, PSP yeah. is retro now. Holy fucking shit. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, I have I have a lot of... I mean, I have probably like 10 PSPs, but um, uh, there's just interesting awesome. hardware that I love and <laughs> hacking. Like, I'm, I, I kind of... Like, I went through my phase, and I still collect games, but I, I've always been sort of more of like a hardware, console hardware guy, so I have a lot of games, but I'm like... Nowadays, with with uh, different options, stuff like that, getting the physical of stuff is... Uh, I've gotten everything that I kind of really want to have, quite honestly, and so that joy of like going out and finding deals on games and stuff is is uh, kind of lost its luster. But, you know, I'm always looking for, like, still variations of hardware, and now I've kind of gone through, and I've been, like, taking all of my Nintendo handhelds and replacing them with IPS screens. So I just did a GBSP recently. So I've just, I've been slowly going through, like, you know, my Game Gears, my GBAs, and um, my Wonder Swans and all that stuff, and just kind of incrementally, like, adding new screens and batteries and speakers to them as a, as a little side hobby. So that's, that's so rad, just upgrading them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, you know, so I, cause I love something intrinsically about the original hardware. Like there's just something magical for that for me. So mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time, like how can I get, uh, you know, visuals out of these original, um, hardware that is the best. Right. So I'm like very like anal about that sort of stuff. But then I also like as a side hobby, like, Oh, how can I modify, these things, right, uh, in certain ways, or replace the optical drives with optical drive emulators and other things like that. So that's sort of my new kind of pastime now. I'm so scared to like take a screwdriver to anything that I own and like crack it open. So mad respect on that. It happens. It's, it's like really cool it, to see. It happens. Like the other day, I was um, one of my the GBSP IPS screen was crooked slightly, and it really annoyed me. I didn't think it was going to originally. It it really annoyed me, so I tried to like straighten it, and then I cracked the glass. <laughs> um, oh. So I had to order oh, another no. repla- replacement screen, and I just replaced that recently. So it happens. Um, yeah. you know, it's annoying because it's like a $40, $50 screen, right? But, oh, wow. um, but you know, it's, it doesn't happen a ton. Um, so I still kind of continue doing it as kind of a, a neat little thing, like new cases, you know, replacement cases and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You've got me beat on PSPs. I've only got three. I need to send you my PSP. I would give my left leg to play Dark Resurrection again from my bed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the PSPs and the Vita, well, I, honestly, like Avita, Avita is so easy to hack, and the PSP emulation is so good on Avita. Like it actually even brings up the PSP like user interface and everything like that. It's so good. Like you don't even have to like you don't even have to like have a PSP anymore, really. Like Avita will do everything. Uh, yep. For Plus, you. you get that second analog stick. Yep. 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 Um, I mean, I still love the PSP. I love PSP Go's. Uh, the PSP Go, I think, is really cool um, as well, and and, uh, and things like that. But I have a lot of handhelds. I have a lot of handhelds. But um, but yeah, the 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 PSP and the Vita are. You know, I had a lot of uh, fun times with them, and I continue to play them. I still I still love playing old hardware. Like last night, I was sitting in bed playing uh, Metroid Fusion on my GBSP. So yes, you know, I love it. So I still do that stuff, and I think it harkens back to like. Um, why I love handhelds, and and this actually correlates to Atari Fifty too, and this is a weird thing, but um, there's something intrinsically wonderful about older games, especially like the Twenty Six Hundred, older handheld games, because 
they're very simplified experiences. You can't mask gameplay with like fancy videos all the time or like yeah. visual effects or things, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. The minute to minute gameplay, especially the early heydays of, of Atari and the gaming industry, the minute to minute gameplay had to be really good because you had to fill in the rest with imagination. And if it if the minute to minute gameplay wasn't good, then you'd move on to something else. It wouldn't retain yeah. your attention. So there's not only from a historical perspective, it's very interesting, and, and the ability to create something like Atari 50 is awesome, but from a game developer sort of perspective, playing those games and understanding what made them kind of unique and special with so limited, you know, blocks, right? Like little blocks for the most yeah. part. And, and the design that went into it really informs mm-hmm. your, your thought process and decisions later on is like when you're working on other games, right? Original games and things like that. So I always feel that there's something magical and, and great. And I suggest to everyone to go back and play older games and see how they were designed and how they worked. Because like I said, there's no trickery there. Like the core gameplay had to be good. And I think sometimes we lose track of that nowadays when you can hide it behind stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Smoke and mirrors for, for, for the most part. Um, so I yeah. think th- as an industry as a whole, I think you can learn a lot from that. Yeah, this this latest batch of games is really we've we've kind of jokingly called them walkie talkies because it's just like, well, yep, here we go. And what was the other term yeah, that you said, Days? Yeah, what was that? I found a new one, icon janitor, where you clean up all yeah, the icons icon on the map. <laughs> You're just you know sweeping the map for everything, and it's like the most fun I've had recently with a game uh, was when I downloaded Vampire Survivors, and it's just like, all right, it's like the gameplay loop is so tight and so like rewarding in that game that it's like. I, I'm good. Like I, this little pixel guy on here is he's fine. I don't I don't need him in in 4K. Yeah, and then that, and that's the thing. Like that that game kind of gets gets that addiction, like that loop, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's 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 great. Like visually, it's not the most impressive thing ever. Yeah, uh, sure. but. The moment to moment. It hits all the right dopamine things right. in your like apparently the guy that worked on that game like used to work on casino games too. So oh, he's like tapping into no. the psychology of like ding 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 yeah. green light, like shiny things. So right, like right. and I kind of saw I was playing, I was like, oh, this was definitely designed by somebody that used to have casino experience. But it's just fun. I mean, like it's it's a good game and that's like I mostly get excited when I see some new form of retro game come out. Like there's uh the other company, uh, I think it's Joy Masher. Uh, they just put out a, a game recently that's like this new version of like a 2D Strider, you know, but it's like, but it's new. So right. it's, it plays like this old school game. Uh, let's see, they released Blazing Chrome. Oh, I know Blazing Chrome, yeah. But yeah, I get, I get your point. And that, that's the thing that like too, that was a lot of fun with Atari 50 is that we got to make those new games. So like Vector Sector and, you know, Quadratang and stuff and like take, I, I think it was really cool because we don't normally get those opportunities to like, you know, take, the interest and the passion for the subject matter, which is Atari, and then let the team members kind of go off. And you know, Jeremy, mm. Jeremy really was enamored and loved like sort of that that vector-based arcade stuff that Atari did, you know, in the early days of the arcade. And so he took that and made Vector Sector, and that was his sort of homage to that, right? Um, yeah. And Mike loves combat slash tank and wanted to do like sort of a modern couch kind of fun experience that captured that aspect of combat tank. So we have quadra tank. And so it was it was a neat why I think Atari 50 was really cool is that you know Atari was open to us also kind of creating our own experiences to supplement, you know, the history uh, of Atari and I think that's where a lot of the team members had a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I figured out that game. It's called a uh, Vengeful Guardian Moonrider. But yeah, it's it's basically just like a new version of Strider and then like their previous game was Blazing Chrome and it was just like, "Hey, what if we did like a modern take on 2D Contra?" 
huh. and it's you know still pixel art and it's it's still got that like same feel of like I'm playing a Super Nintendo game but it just came out last week and it's got all these improvements and it's like that's the stuff I'm really like excited to play these days yeah and I, th- I think I think game companies really could learn something from that it's like let's go back to the core gameplay and just get like satisfying gameplay loops and that's you know the Atari collection is full of it yeah, I think um, that's where you get from the indie scene nowadays, right? Because I think from a from a large scale publisher perspective, they have to have hits. Like now, they have to like yeah. they have to in order to sustain themselves, they have to have these large gargantuan hits, and then sure. they have to play it safe to a degree. Um, and so you get these indie things. But what I what I feel the industry is missing now is sort of this mid tier kind of game. Yes. Absolutely. Right? There's like the indie and smaller scope stuff, which is awesome. And that's where a lot of some of the innovation comes from and things like that. Then you have the large scale triple A high budget stuff that most large publishers have to do in order to keep going. But there's this middle tier experience that I feel is is missing where it's kind of like more than the indie, but you know, and it has like some of this additional sort of quality and scope and things like that to it, but not to the level where you're spending you know, 30, 40, 100 million on a product, mm-hmm. right? And I think we've, we're missing that now. Yeah. Small companies like Ubisoft out here are just struggling to make the ends meet. You know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, small, small, indie stu- small indie studio Ubisoft. They played the yeah. victim last week, and it was like, come on, guys. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the thing. And, uh, but maybe as we go along and, and more tools... Um, and ease of development uh, continue to progress along. Engines are easier to use. That the the traditional indie game or experience will continue to grow and grow and grow, and you'll start to see more uh, medium scope stuff that comes out of indies, and you know, and and uh, you know, may surprise folks and stuff like. That. So hopefully, that's what the future will hold. I'm 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 hoping that the tools and and access to art um, and, and things like that will. Um, be much easier for people and they can create sort of these larger scale experiences that still have the more of the innovative side that the indie devs tend to bring to the table, right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of these tools have been sort of democratized for for the public where they used to be sort of the exclusive purview of, of you know, these large companies who had access to these expensive tools. And now, you know, you've got Blender, you've got uh, Unity and Unreal Engine, which even, the you know, the large companies are using that in droves right. and there's all of these other i mean there's competitors to to tools like photoshop and and mm-hmm. you know any anything just about every single tool uh in a development pipeline has got some sort of uh you know sort of less expensive but still very capable sort of public se- sector analog to it now yep and people are starting to catch on Exactly. And, and as that progresses and it becomes easier to do stuff and procedural stuff, I mean, I think a lot, not that we want to go down the full AI generation stuff, but just procedural <laughs> stuff, uh, the ease of, of being able to do that a bit more and tools to yeah. kind of um, allow for easy creation of similar artwork to populate levels and stuff like that will go a long way. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited from the indie perspective to see sort of where we go, um, you know, and, you know, from our side, like, Sort of preserving that, and um, you know, and and bringing it to a broader audience, and and kind of, you know, for this newer generation of gamers who who grew up predominantly on like Fortnite and and things like that, that there are, you know, there's so much wonderful history of, of video games in there, and things that you can learn from, and things you you know will enjoy enjoy, and that's like the stories that really make me sort of. And the heartwarming stories that really get me are the ones that, you know, they tweet me or they email us um, and saying like, hey, you know, I didn't grow up with Atari, 
you know, I, di I didn't really know much about Atari outside of like the, the Fuji logo uh, from, you know, a mall t-shirt or something like that. Um, <laughs> I had a Coleco. <laughs> <laughs> right or something. So so, and then they say like I picked this up, and and oftentimes you see you saw an influx because like we brought in a large number of new people with Calabunga collection, right? That weren't necessarily um, aware of us or bought our stuff, and then they're like, "Wow, I really like Calabunga collection. What's your next thing?" Which is Atari, and so they took a risk and they went and got Atari, and they're like, "Wow, this is I learned so much about." You know, video game history and where things came from. It gave me a newfound appreciation where games are now, um, and you know what the future may hold. And those are the stories, you know, that really are heartwarming to me. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, if you're an Atari fan, you're a gamer, like, and you bought Atari Fifty, I love you and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. But really, it's the what I was saying to you earlier, where if you can reach people outside of the nostalgia factor, um, who aren't traditionally the audience that um, are aware of that IP or grew up with that IP and you could still get their interest and get them excited about something. I think that's a huge win-win, right? For everybody. Yeah. That's how you know you've got something special and it's not just bringing people back on, you know, on member berries for sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, Steven, we don't want to take up too much of your time and it's, we're running a little long here, but, uh, I got one last question for you. Uh, who's your favorite Ninja Turtle? Uh, probably Michelangelo. Uh, okay, I, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like <laughs> I, I am, I, but I will say that I am the courteous Turtles player where if I'm playing four players, I am the last one to select. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's very nice. I'm, I'm a Donatello all day. Right. So, you know, you got to have that reach. Right. So yeah. No, that's, I'll fight over that. that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, yeah. But, you know, it shaves after working on a, a game for such an extended, extended period of time, <laughs> like you get used to playing, you've played every variation and every and every turtle, right? Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's sort of the the thing like, oh, they all have their merits and all have their thing. And uh, um, But yeah, if I, you know, if you held a gun to my head, I'd probably say Michelangelo. <laughs> I respect it. I like Raphael, but in the UK, we call them the core blimey tea drinker turtles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, uh, Stephen, if you want to plug your, you know, your sites and where people can follow you on social media and where to follow Digital Eclipse. Sure. Uh, um, go ahead with that. Yeah, Digital Eclipse. Uh, obviously, we are at digitaleclipse.com. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Digital Eclipse. I'm uh, Frostman007 because I'm a big James Bond fan, so I had to add 007 to the last part of my Twitter handle. Um, and um, you can easily find us on Facebook, pretty much every social platform by just typing in Digital Eclipse. Uh, we're pretty easy to find, but our our main sort of outlet is uh, Twitter uh, still these days. So uh, feel free to follow us. Um, come to the website and sign up our newsletter. Um, we have been uh, known to provide uh, or send free games, uh, original games, to people who sign up for our newsletter. We've done it three times, so we may continue that trend in the near future. Um, so... We have been, uh, we've done three sort of what we call Digital Eclipse Arcade releases for the different holidays. So we did um, Thanksgiving, uh, we did Halloween, and we did Christmas. Um, so they're just these fun little, you know, trying to capture kind of old school arcade experience, but new games that we, um, we choose someone at the company to kind of go off and, and create. Um, and we... You know, try to send that out to people who follow our newsletter. So if you're so inclined and are interested in something like that, you can go to the digitalclips.com website and sign up there. Um, and we may, you may get something in the near future. Uh, and we promise not to send out too many newsletters. So don't worry about that. <laughs> awesome. 
All right. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it, and uh, it's it's been a great time talking. And we're definitely all looking forward to what Digital Eclipse is working on next. I mean, if if the uh, the previous entries are any standard, and like you guys are constantly raising the bar, so it's uh, I'm I bet you guys will do what you're already doing. So yeah, just looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, definitely. We have a lot more uh, stuff coming out in this year across a variety of different things. Um, so, you know, I just equate it to like you know we have we have turtle sort of stuff and we have Atari 50 sort of stuff. And so we'll continue down those roads um, as well as, you know, maybe exploring other different paths as well. So uh, definitely excited to uh, see where 2023 takes us and hopefully uh, everyone will hang around and and see that as well. Absolutely. Best of luck. Keep doing what you're doing because you're, you're one of the good ones out there. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Thank you.